Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of mobility and manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive and industrial manufacturing industries and supporting ecosystems, and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Bonnie in the house. Happy to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to help make the world a better place, and we all do right now, it's time to run and drive if you've got a car with the Game Changers, and this is where the best are running, driving, and working in place. I have an interesting buzz quote here to open the show from www.itv.com slash news. Interesting. Let me read it. They're quoting a Professor Mark Kleinman at King's College in London, and And he identified public transport as one of the most challenging areas to manage in a post-coronavirus world. Post-coronavirus world. Think about that. We are seeing countries and cities and states emerging, re-emerging, reopening. As I speak to you now, we are live, by the way. It's May 12, 2020. And as cities start to open up, how do they get people from place to place if people are allowed to get from place to place? So let me give you a little more overview, and then I'll be introducing my two very special guests today. We have so much to talk about. So the world has changed even more and faster than usual in the past. What has it been? Eight weeks, 12 weeks, three months? And cities around the world are forced to adapt to new realities. How can the smart city game changers listeners around the world for years to my shows we had a show dedicated to smart cities now we're talking about it here today on this one how can the smart city model be effectively deployed to manage pandemics like the one we're unfortunately in and other disruptions specifically What implications does the present crisis have for future urban mobility and mass transportation? How do we get from point A to point B? We have a panel of two experts today, and they're so expert we only needed two. And they're going to discuss the current and future status of technologically enabled cities in the age of COVID-19. And that's an age we never wanted to be able to say as something that was real. I'm going to introduce you in just a moment to Adam Lubinsky, L-U-B-I-N-S-K-Y at WXY Studio. That's always a tongue twister for me because I want to put a Z in there. And Santa Belay at SAP. Adam is a newcomer to Game Changers Radio. And a shout out to Chris Sullivan who works with him for supporting and helping get Adam here. And Santa Belay at SAP has been on before. So join us for Smart Cities and Mobility in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. Again, I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to our global listeners. We're so happy you're here. We hope you are well and safe. And if you're sequestered somewhere, we hope you find this show interesting, informative, inspirational, and maybe even a little bit of fun. So let's go around the table here. First up, I'd like to welcome Adam Lubinsky. And Adam, please introduce yourself to our listeners and just take a couple minutes and tell us who you are, what you do, how did you get to do what you do, and what does this topic mean to you? Welcome, Adam. Great. Thank you, Bonnie. It's great to be here. And um, it's a bit of a long-winded story how I got to be here. Um, You know, before I went to train as an architect and work as an urban planner, I actually started out as a a teacher. Um, And one of the things that I learned along the way was understanding how children were working together and how that worked 
uh, in terms of informing um, both social situations that made me think about how cities were working. Um, And so today I'm a a partner at a firm called WXY um, where we focus on architecture and urban planning. And we look at things from many different scales, from the scale of a water fountain to the scale of uh, systems informing how cities operate. Um, and we're, we're based in New York City. We work mostly on public projects, thinking about parks, thinking about schools, thinking about civic buildings, and how they come together. Very, very interesting. This must be a very big deal time for your organization, for WXY, Adam. Are you busier than ever helping cities try to plan what's next? Well, what's, what's the workload like right now? Well, I think for, for all architects and urban planners, it's a, it's a complicated time because, mm-hmm. of course, many of the things that we were working on had nothing to do with coronavirus. And a lot of those projects really needed to be put on hold. You know, in particular, there was a period of time in New York City where construction projects needed to stop. Um, so that really forced us to pause uh, and reorient. At the same time, a lot of new things are really starting to pick up. And we're really starting to look first at the kind of impacts of COVID-19 and how we can respond. And then second, starting to consider what what does a post-COVID or a partly post-COVID world look like as we start to reopen. So I would say we are busy, but it's complicated as we pivot in our work. Thank you. Very well put. Complicated as we pivot in our work, and the work may take on different different avenues. No pun. I guess that's a pun intended uh, in terms of how cities need your help. Adam, welcome, and thank you so much for being with us today. And now let's move one stop around the table. There's one other chair at the table, and we're very happy to welcome Senta Belay. Senta, how have you been? And just in case, Senta, there's one person in the world who doesn't remember you from previous Game Changer shows. Would you please introduce yourself again? Well, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and thanks for the invite once more as well. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, since I'm here, I, um, I work for a company called SAP, a German multinational company focused on uh, IT solutions for enterprises. And I'm a solution manager there. So the first half of my professional life, actually, I've been working on movement of uh, cargo in operational uh, world. So I was working on ships. I have a captain's license, uh, worked as a shipmate, but I was mainly focused on moving of freight and cargo in the supply chain of the world. And the second half of my profession, once I started with SAP, uh, it was more focused on people's movements from A to B, whether it was on an airline or whether it was on a railways. And over the last five years, I was heavily focused on the urban transit part. So what transpired was uh, over the last, or five years, you know, there was a lot of focus of understanding how, you know, people are moving towards an urban context. People are having a lot of strains. The system is having a lot of strain in terms of congestion, how people are actually moving from A to B. And at the same time, not only the movement of people, but also of the parcels and the freight. So over the last five years, I've uh, been focusing heavily on how we can adopt uh, technology to, to help cities move people efficiently. And then COVID happened. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's where, I get, where we are right now. Thank you, Santa. And I see in your bio here, you were a merchant Navy officer holding a class two slash one seagoing Marine officer certification. What was that life like, Santa? 
So that was, uh, now if you remember like the cruise uh, companies which had recently the first coronavirus breaks. Yes. So I was working, yeah, exactly. So I was working on the merchant marine side of that industry. So the ones on the news were, you know, the cruise companies having a lot of struggle and efforts to contain those viruses. And uh, luckily, you know, the governments came up and things were solved nicely. But at the same time, there's a huge industry, which is the merchant marine where 70 to 80% of the world's cargo between China and the U.S. and other places move around. And I was working on those ships, uh, six months contracts, four months contracts. And we actually ensured that the world's commodities both finished and, you know, early stage commodities like the fuel and the, and the coal and the, and the corn move from A to B. It's a, a tough life, but it was rewarding. Interesting. Did you ever get to the Merchant Marine Academy in, in uh, Kings Point, Great Neck, Long Island, Center? No, but I went through a, a circuitous route. So I started uh, in, in Bombay, in India, and then I ended up doing a, a course in, in, in Ghana, and then finally ended up in, in China as well. But all the time I was sailing for the most part in Europe to Asia line. So I've been to all the major European ports. Unlucky for me, I didn't sail that time when we were doing merchant navy, merchant navy uh, here on the west side of the, on the western hemisphere. It was more like European uh, and okay. Asian route. I asked because I lived in Great Neck for over thirty years until about two years ago. Adam, this may sound familiar to you. And the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy has a quote unquote home in Great Neck, Kings Point, Long Island, on the water, on the bay. And I, uh, I hosted many events at their officers' club. It was a beautiful site and very popular for local events. Uh, they rented out, and it's just very interesting life there, though. So anyway, thank you, Center, for that very interesting background, and Adam as well. This is the part of the show where I. I have asked my guests in advance to send me a motivational, inspirational, fun, some kind of an interesting quote that on the surface has absolutely nothing to do with our topic. And if you're just tuning in, by the way, this is our new show called The Future of Mobility and Manufacturing with Game Changers Radio, formerly known as The Future of Cars with Game Changers. This is May 12, 2020, episode four in the series, and my very special guests are Adam Lubinsky at WXY Studio and Santa Belay at SAP. And I'm still Bonnie. So this is the part of the show where I've asked my guests to send me a quote, and Adam is, does a wonderful quote from Mark Twain. And let me just give a little background here in case anybody doesn't know Mark Twain. <coughs> Excuse me. Full name, Samuel Langhorn Clemens, 1835 to 1910. Boy, would he have had something to write about, Adam, if he had been around and seen something called the Internet and cell phones and, and what we're doing right now. Anyway, he was known by his pen name of Mark Twain, an American writer, humorist, entrepreneur, publisher and lecturer. He was called the greatest humorist the U.S. has produced at that time, and Faulkner called him the father of American literature. Anybody doesn't know the name Mark Twain, you surely know The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and its sequel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn penned in the 1870s and 1880s, the latter is often called the Great American Novel. So when somebody writes too much, we say, what are you doing, writing a Great American Novel? That's where it came from, Mark Twain. Here's a quote Adam has selected. Work and play are words used to describe the same thing under differing conditions. <laughs> Adam, this sounds like a, a tautology almost. Talk to me, Adam. How'd you pick the quote, and what does it have to do with our topic? Well, uh, Mark Twain, it was a great description of Mark Twain, and he basically had a, a quote for everything. He really um, was so brilliant in so many ways. 
But um, but I I selected that quote really because of um, sort of my origins, and uh, you know, took a long time to. Uh, start working in the field of urban planning. Um, and again, I mentioned I started as a teacher, and actually most of my teaching experience was uh, working at a summer camp. I started um, when I was in college, a summer uh, camp that is still going today, um, and it had a focus on the arts. And one of the things that I found um, when I was working with kids who I know were often uh, not so motivated in school different setting, um, camp being uh, the operative word, which is not like school, um, that they could find a very different focus um, when they were in the act of play. And so, you know, what I love about the Mark Twain quote is this idea, really, that, that work and play are kind of two sides of the same coin, um, that work is something that you do when you're driven by external expectations. Play is something that you do when you're really uh, driven by your own internal focus. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I really love the idea that, um, you know, we learn best when we're playing um, and that what we discover when we're playing is not, not just um, using our creativity but understanding the interconnectedness between things, which is really something that I'll want to talk about today when we think about how to deploy smart city systems. There's another great, great quote, because, of course, there are a million quotes we could go into. One is that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, uh, and play is the father. And this idea that play is so integral uh, to really uh, uh, innovation in all sorts of ways. Um, and so that's something that I really like to explore in, in my work now. Thank you, Adam. Very, very interesting. We always love to get a quote from, from Mark Twain. This is one I hadn't heard before, so thank you for selecting that one and really appreciate your uh, your explanation there. Let's go around to Santa Belay, and Santa has sent us a quote from Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Apiens, A Brief History of Mankind. Let me give a little background here. Yuval Noah Harari, still very much alive and well, born in 1976. I call him a very young man, an Israeli historian and professor in the Department of History at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's the author of the popular science bestsellers, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which he wrote in 2014, Homo Deus, D-E-U-S, A Brief History of Tomorrow, from 2016, and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, 2018. His writings examined free will, consciousness, intelligence, and happiness. And he writes about the cognitive revolution that occurred almost 70,000 years ago when Homo sapiens supplanted the rival Neanderthals. Very interesting context here. Here's the quote Santa selected. The secret was probably the appearance of fiction. Large numbers of strangers can cooperate successfully by believing in common myths. That's heavy. Santa, talk to me. How'd you find this one? <laughs> well, so the first book that he wrote is actually my favorite one. You know, the one about uh, sapiens, a brief history of, of mankind or humankind. And actually, it's like uh, over the last three years, I've been reading a lot of books. And this is one of the books that actually kind of is heavy. And I wanted to reflect on it because... He is saying it's fiction, and he was talking about like 70,000 years ago about the cognitive revolution. Like, we were hunter-gatherers, and, you know, it was very difficult to have a society more than 100 people. 
So to bring more than 100 people, you actually have to weave a story of, okay, we are in this together, we are building something together, uh, our common enemy is the lions or the hyenas, and he kind of depicted as man, as human beings, as a thinking being, so that they can elicit a story to bind people together. And why I chose this right now is, you know, we see a lot of predictions, we see a lot of things that might happen, might not happen. So there's a lot of things that are going on. Uh, we only know what's happening up till now. We only know the facts. We only know what is transpired today. Beyond this, it's more uh, educated guess. And more importantly, if we have more and more data, we can actually say this could happen. And that's where the fiction comes in. So if we as a collective, for example, when it comes to smart cities or other areas, if we have a collective will of saying, you know, this is how it's going to transpire because of the data says this, and this is where we have to focus our, 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 on, on our efforts. So before this COVID thing happens, we are all like, okay, business as usual, we have to improve on the IT, we have to improve on the, on the effectiveness, we have to improve our business model, you know, bottom line. So all those things are well understood fictions that we are working towards. But now we are at the point that says, is it? going to continue in the same way that we have done or there is a lot of inputs that we don't have and uh, have grasp of as yet so actually we can predict this will be the outcome and thus we will work on that aspect of it so that's why i said like maybe you know it's, it's time to really think through what's happening and have a collective fiction or a collective vision of what could transpire and where we want to put our efforts on so that we have a better tomorrow once, you know, the, the COVID thing dissipates gradually. So that's why I chose uh, Yuval Hari, and I'm a big fan of his, his books. Thank you very much, Sid. I've had a few other guests over the past couple of years quote him as well. It's always interesting to see his quotables popped up. So thank you very much for that. I think we're not going to take a break today because I want to keep this going. We've got good energy if you're just tuning in. This is the future of mobility and manufacturing with Game Changers Radio. Speaking with Adam Lubinsky at WXY Studio and Santa Belay at SAP. And we're talking about a very, very timely topic, smart cities and mobility in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. I'm just going to drop a little note here from the news today to Adam and Santa and get your reactions. I'm not looking for any political commentary, but... There is a picture on uh, Twitter, I believe it was on Twitter this morning, of someone flying a commercial flight and being told, the, I'm not naming the airline, the middle seat in all of the rows would be not sold. And the person got on, it was a cross-country U.S. flight, six hours, and the plane was almost filled to capacity. Everybody was wearing a mask, and they were sitting inches apart for a six-hour flight across the U.S. Adam, any commentary on that as far as mobility goes? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, there's going to be um, uh, lots of adjustments that we're going to need to make. Um, and, and some of those adjustments are going to be in terms of how, um, you know, subways and airplanes and buses are dealt with. And, the, and some of the challenges are going to need to be addressed before people get on um, those planes and subways and, and buses. And so, you know, even just to go back to um, some of what I was talking about before, really starting to, to, to uh, explore things creatively and understand interconnectedness and understand um, how our public health um, system is working so we're able to 
properly uh, contact trace people and understand their condition before um, they get on modes of transportation is going to be really uh, critical. And that's something um, that um, we can explore doing now, you know, with smart city technology, uh, as opposed to 1918 when we last had a flu yep. pandemic. And, you know, I've, I've definitely been going back and looking at old news stories about what was happening then. And 1918 was a period where there was a real explosion of streetcar usage. It was, it was really the heyday. Um, and at that time, you know, they had, they were hiring people with masks to get on streetcars and to space people out and to um, mm. prevent too many people uh, from getting on streetcars. Um, and they did that for a long time. And, and streetcars uh, bounced back. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until much later when, when car usage really took over and, and streetcar usage declined and buses took over. Um, but, but there was a rebound in streetcar usage after a period of time. But it did take some time. And it did also require um, some real hands-on methods uh, to address the challenge. So I think, you know, we're going to need um, to take on some of those hands-on methods as well as explore yeah. uh, different uh, ways of using using systems, you know, sort of invisible infrastructures um, with data, um, temperature checks, uh, those kinds of things um, that allow us to, to get back on uh, planes and subways and, and buses. Thank you, Adam. Very thoughtful answer. I, I don't off. Well, sometimes I throw I throw ringers at my guests. I just had to get your response. Sentable. I'd love to get your thoughts about finding yourself getting on up an airplane where where there's a, a hundred fifty or two hundred people sitting three inches apart. What would you? What What's your take on that from the perspective of your expertise for the show today, Senta? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like. Uh, the challenge that I see is like, you know, right now we don't have the visibility of cause and effect. Um, I mean, like I work in the transit industry and I'm trying to understand what's happening in, in Wuhan, what's happening in Milan, what's happening in, in Madrid, in Barcelona, and, you know, talking to, to a lot of people. And when you see planes feel like that, what, what, what comes to me is like there is a gap in terms of uh, one thing happening and the, the, the causality of it, like maybe two weeks, three weeks. Perhaps, you know, all the safety requirements that have been done, you know, the, the, you know what Adam mentioned, you know, temperature checks, the PPEs, if they have been done properly, it's fine. Uh, perhaps if a couple of people have been, like, I would be a little bit worried as well. But the, the models that we have to think about right now is like, since there is a bit of a delay to understand the real uh, effect, maybe it was a good thing, maybe it was a bad thing, but the, since there is a gap of model, I would err on the side of, you know, fortifying what else can we do. Obviously, we have the mm -hmm. capability, like in transit, uh, for example, they are doing, uh, in Milan, I was checking out like 30% occupancy throughout the network. And there are people actually standing outside, making sure that there's not more than 30% within the entire network or they mm. slow the, 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 the people coming in. They give you uh, the, the, the mask and so on. So since we really don't know how fast this thing is going, we have to be careful and give it a, a, a risk factor where we, increase, we reduce our risk by doing all the necessary things that we can do. But obviously... Movement is critical. Um, the planes will go. Transit will happen. Food, uh, 
health, safety. These are critical things. You just cannot just stop it. So it's a bit of a, a risk, but minimizing the risk as much as possible. So it's a bit of a challenging time. Thank you very much. Certainly challenging times. Thank you both for answering my question on the spur of the moment. Now let's go to the statements you each sent me before the show, and let's do some deep diving here. I'm going to start with statement number one from Adam. And Adam, I'm just going to read a little bit. Uh, you posed a question, and this is not a Q&A, but you posed a question and then answered it. Do smart city technologies strengthen or weaken a sense of the civic commons? And then you quoted Jane Jacobs in The Death and Life of Great American Cities, a city street equipped to handle strangers and to make a safety asset in itself must have three main qualities. So I'm not going to read this, but I'd love for you to take about two minutes, Adam, and expand this to relate to our topic today. And then I'm going to ask Santa for his POV point of view about what you say. And then I'll pick a statement from Santa's list and then we'll go around and we'll go back and forth, see how much we can cover. So Adam, thoughts about this Jane Jacobs quote and where are we today as far as city streets? Adam? Yeah, no, that's um, um, Jane Jacobs is uh, is the go-to for many people in the in the world of city planning and urban planning. And you know, one of the amazing things about her is she really was focused on how people lived in cities and uh, and really drawing it all the way down to the street and to neighborhoods, um, as opposed to thinking about things from very high level uh, systems from thinking about transit in very complex ways. She was able to really move between the scale of the way an economy functioned all the way to, to how people were living uh, uh, you know, on the ground. Um, and that's why so many people love her, and she really um, was so powerful in setting out this vision. And so you know, her quote, which really ends by talking about the importance of eyes on the street, um, which is this concept that, you know, if people are looking out their windows and they have a sense of ownership of that street, um, then other people, strangers coming along, won't uh, won't misbehave. Um, and you know, I think it's such a an important um, quote uh, to bring up when thinking about smart cities because people mm-hmm. get very excited about the technology and use of sensors and being able to uh, move towards uh, more efficient um, cities. Um, but what she emphasized is really this importance of eyes on the street, and those eyes aren't necessarily cameras, um, but those eyes are um, uh, people who have a sense of ownership. Mm-hmm. And so I think the challenge we have today when thinking about how to implement smart city technologies is how we don't lose that sense of the street and the street being our place, and we don't lose the sense of the collective. and. So when we look at the challenge of creating um, interconnected systems where uh, getting on a subway feels safer um, because we know that, you know, people have been temperature checked and, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're healthy when they get on the subway and they're not carrying a virus. Um, We need to feel safe and, and secure in terms of, uh, how that data uh, is informing things and how that data is being shared. And so, you know, even if she was only talking about a basic c- uh, city street, you know, how do we extrapolate that, you mm-hmm. know, that sense of the civic commons so we have a sense of solidarity and, uh, solidarity and collectivity when it comes to doing what we need to do uh, 
to feel safe and uh, trust being out in a restaurant or on the street or getting on a subway. Um, how do we how do we build that into our um, smart city systems? Um, so that I'll I'll leave it at that. I think I spoke to a couple for a couple of minutes, and I think you know Senta uh, touched on some of those challenges. Mm-hmm. But it really is core to making uh, making our cities work properly in this age. Thank you. Very thoughtful perspective yeah. there, Adam. I appreciate that. And thanks for the Jane Jacobs quote. Santa, I'd love for you to comment on what Adam just shared. Go ahead. Yeah. No, absolutely great, Adam. I mean, in fact, uh, the way you extrapolate it as well, I can extrapolate it one more further in terms of, you know, for example, uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, um, uh, times person of the year and you know the the way that the collective eye right now is more on the climate change you know our cities uh, carbon emission is too much uh, and we all know like 60 70 percent of the population nowadays is living in urban agglomeration so i would expand as well you know what jane jacob said about the collective view of the city and making sure like okay i see this is ours this is our the ownership Toward the younger generation who are actually saying, you know, we have to have an efficient way of moving while not polluting the city that we own, the movement that we own. So biking, uh, walking, uh, making sure they're more industrialized. Obviously, this all can be made into action by some form of understanding how people move, you know, data is required. How many cars are there? Is congestion pricing reasonable? Should we close this pedestrian line versus the other one? Should we, you know, all those things are IT-centric support that needs to be done. But the collective view, I would even like take it one, one step further and say maybe, you know, when Gritza goes on stage on, on World Economic Forum and blasts the, 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 the adults there, that would, uh, that I would say is like more of the next version of what Jane Jacobs dreamed about. Thank you both. I want to add a personal story to this, just a very brief one, uh, Adam and Senta. A microcosm of a street and the common street concept, Adam. Uh, For the first time this past Sunday, Mother's Day, I went to a grocery store for the first time in eight weeks. And I went early, Uh 8 o'clock in the morning, and not one in my neighborhood. I I wanted to go to something that was newer, fresher. I I knew from people telling me the one in my neighborhood, I won't name the store. It's a gorgeous store, but many people do not wear masks, and it is very crowded. When I drive by the parking lot occasionally, it's packed, and I didn't want to go there. So I found one about three miles away, and I... I didn't realize that. And Adam, this is about city streets. They had put arrows, enter, exit on each of the aisles in the grocery store. You could only go in one way to keep people from walking facing each other. The flow was the same as a city street. Now, I didn't know this, and and I'm wearing my my dark glasses. It was bright inside, wearing my sunglasses. And I walked down an aisle the wrong way, unbeknownst to me. I was the only one in the aisle. And there was a young man restocking, I don't know, tomato paste or Campbell soup or something in that aisle. And he, 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 store employee, they all, by the way, had gloves and masks on, which I appreciated. And he looked at me and said, ma'am, you're walking the wrong way down this aisle. And my first reaction under my breath was, well, damn it, I'm the only one here. And my second reaction was, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
I will obey the rules. I will be a good traffic rule obeyer, and I will walk the correct way. So, in other words, if you decide you want something that's that's four four uh, cases back in an aisle, you can't walk backwards. You have to go around and come yeah. around again. It's like the New York City streets, Adam, where it's one way, one way, one way, and you have to figure which street you have to go down in order to get to the one where you want that goes the other way. But more important, perhaps, yeah. than that, and it was quite an experience for me. I shopped like there was no tomorrow instead of having people just bring me milk, eggs, and banana. I filled the cart. It was a couple hundred dollars. I was just, I didn't care what the prices were. Just let me do my own shopping. But there were people in the store, customers, without masks. And I found anger bubbling up inside of me. And I was thinking of saying, who the hell do you think you are putting us at risk when you talk or if you sneeze or cough? Why would you do that to the rest of us? We're protecting you. Why can't you protect us? And I, I, I've never experienced this because I first time in the store. Anyway, you don't need to comment on that, but I think you, you get the parallel. Was It was a city street, Adam and Santa, and it was in a grocery store, and it had a one-way sign, and I had to obey it, and I was glad that they had taken the trouble to do that to protect us. So there you go. Santa, I'm looking at your statements here, and let's quote somebody else, very, very famous, Maslow. And you say, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is your statement number two, Santa. Maslow's hierarchy of needs provides a good framework to think of essential needs. For the higher level of needs now, we have permission to experiment and raise the standards even higher for the future of mobility and the movement of people and goods. Cinta, please expand this. Tell us more. Go ahead. I'd be happy to. So, um, I mean, we came to learn very fast that, you know, people who deliver the foods, uh, people who take care when we are sick, uh, the hospitals, people who actually need to go through the transit system and actually make sure this thing works, uh, the waste management, postal services, you know, we pretty fast came to realize what is essential services, but that was more of an instinctual thing. But Maslow has actually described, you know, those two basic things, you know, safety and security and physiological needs, anything that's related to health, food, water, employment, security, healthcare, you know, those are the bottom rungs. We as a society have gone way further than that and we have been thinking more, okay, self-esteem, realization, self-actualization, so that's the higher needs. So what COVID did is actually, you know, blew a, a torchlight and, and we can actually see visibly where is the most important things in terms of existence itself. And then we can actually figure out okay, what higher purpose things that we can actually accomplish. And that's what I was saying, you know, about permission to experiment. So I, I was listening to one of the talks that was done by Malcolm Gladwell, actually, recently, and he was describing what a future NBA playoffs could look like. So he was describing, you know, instead of sitting high up and seeing the, the, the teams playing, you can actually have digital technologies where perhaps, you know, the players might be having small sensors where you can actually listen to their breathing and enjoy and, and exertions and winning. So you can actually have the license to per- experiment on the higher level needs at this moment in time. So, for example, before this thing happens, we were saying, okay, we need to reduce congestion. We need to uh, make sure mobility service works. We need to make the transit efficient. We need to bring electric cars. And there was a lot of things that we have been thinking of. 
they are on pause right now, but that doesn't mean that we have to disregard them. In fact, right now is more of a permission to experiment because we have the, the mental powers and, 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 and the energy and, and, and making things better. And that is the self-actualization part. So right now, we have permission to experiment and come out at the other end of, the, of, of this tunnel in a better way. So we might have you know, a well uh, frequency, the well-structured public network that works with a lot of bikes uh, at, the, at the last mile, we could have a very efficient last mile deliveries working within a city uh, and within each other. We could have several service providers, not only the transit company, but private, private operators also working together in tandem in a more efficient way. So those are the permissions that we can experiment, but we definitely need to focus right now on making sure that the the safety and physiological needs of all of us are met. So that's what I was trying to portray. So Maslow might give us, you know, the basics of what we should focus on right now. Thank you very much, Santa. Adam, comments, please. Well, you know, I think those are great points um, that Santa made, and and I would definitely second that in terms of uh, experimentation. And I think. You know, there's, of course, a need to focus on public health uh, when experimenting, but there's also really trying to figure out how we restart uh, urban life. And, um, you know, one thing in particular is that a lot of the, you know, a lot of the challenges um, that we're facing now, there were, there were trends um, that predated coronavirus, you know, things like um, uh, stores on, on streets, um, being challenged by e-commerce, and so you know, in, uh, you know, we were facing a real uh, critical time in New York City where retailers were struggling against e-commerce, and our, um, you know, our streets were uh, filled with delivery trucks, and so mm-hmm. congestion was a real challenge too. Um, and in fact, uh, transit usage in New York City uh, had been declining since 2015. Buses more dramatically, but even subways were being less used. And that had a lot to do with uh, ride sharing um, uh, in particular. And so, you know, this idea of experimenting, you know, at its core, yes, let's find a way to uh, get healthy. But second, let's take another look at how we want our cities to be. And it may be hard to get all sorts of retail uh, back up to where it was, but it doesn't mean we should I uh, think that, that all street life is going to stop. You know, what are the kinds of activities uh, mm-hmm. that people love, whether it's outdoor green markets or outdoor restaurants? Um, let's really think about our streets. And New York City is uh, experimenting with closing 100 miles of streets, and Milan in Italy is closing streets. Let's really think about how we want to use our streets now um, so that people um, feel good and feel happy being in, in urban spaces. So, you know, this idea of experimenting really takes on many levels, and some of those things can address challenges that preexisted uh, before coronavirus. You know, really thinking about how to care for our essential workers in all sorts of ways, whether it's making sure they can get places safely, uh, making sure that um, if they have to go to work, um, that their children are able to do distance learning uh, in a way they have the right equipment and they're supervised. And so there's so many complex issues 
um, that have arisen, and, and we do really need to find different ways forward. Thank you very much. Very interesting. And I noticed, Adam, that you touched on your comment, your statement number two, as far as placemaking. So I'm going to skip that one right now. Let's go to um, a good conversation, by the way. Let's go to, uh, let's see here. Let's go to statement number three, Adam, for you, since you covered what we covered one and two. Can smart city technologies create greater equity? And you say, given the current COVID-19, the New York City Department of Education has been forced into a rapid deployment of remote learning for more than 1 million students. Will they be able to create a smart city through remote learning? That's a fascinating question. Adam, why don't you talk about this briefly and let's see what Senta has to say and then we'll pick another topic from Senta to keep this moving. Go ahead. Sure. Well, you know, I think when the, when the sort of smart city movement was in its early stages, uh, you know, maybe you know, 15, minutes, 15 years ago, you know, there really was this sort of perception that, um, you know, with smartphone technology and laptops, um, that there was going to be this ability uh, to kind of leapfrog, uh, you know, whether it was uh, various countries or, or uh, people living within cities that didn't have certain technology. Um, and I think, you know, part of what the COVID-19 pandemic has shined a light on is that it's not simply about a technological fix. If you get every, you know, child uh, in New York City a, um, you know, technology-enabled device, you know, where uh, it's got, it's Wi-Fi enabled, um, that, um, that your problems are solved. And it's just not that simple. You know, it, it relates to uh, the infrastructure of the home. You know, do children actually have space to make their own classroom, uh, you know, in a small apartment? Um, it relates to whether their parents are essential workers um, and they need to leave the home. You know, many children in New York City um, get meals at school. Um, and so, you know, this challenge of making uh, a more equitable city and thinking about how smart city technologies play a part in it, it's really just one piece of the puzzle. And we really need to figure out a whole range of uh, social uh, uh, and structural changes um, that work together with smart city technologies in order to, in order to make things work. And, the, you know, these things get very much into the weeds. You know, we've been having conversations this morning at our office about, you know, what does it mean to restart schools? You know, can we have as many kids uh, in a classroom at the same time? And, of course, Asia and Europe are already restarting with smaller classes. How do kids get into a school? You know, what is that yep. entryway like? If it's been around a school today, you've seen how many kids pile in to an entryway. So how do you stage that entry? How do kids get to school? You know, are they on crowded buses or subways to get there? So there's so many challenges in terms of restarting uh, our life, whether it's schools or it's retail and it's our city streets and transit. And we've got, we've got to plug the smart city technology into a whole range of structural changes. Thank you, Adam. Senta, join us. Yeah. Thoughts about that issue? Yeah. Of how do we get kids out? What about carpooling? What about whose mom or dad is going to pull up with four kids from the block in that car? Uh, and, and whose kids are going to be safe in whose car? And you're right, getting into the school and going through the halls and who's going to clean the desk. It's, it's mobility at a different level. Senta, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I mean, very good example. And actually, it's like uh, this is kind of a wake-up call in terms of what mm-hmm. we call a business process, right? So, for example, the kids have to go to school, but who is going to have access into uh, in their in, in, about their names? Are they going to use their mobile phone? And which company is going, is going to move them? And which school is the one that's going to receive them? At what time? Which networks? All these things are software-centric problems that needs to be solved in terms of a process like the, the, the student A with this family, with this type of level of access to transportation has to go to school B. And this explodes to the entire city. Now, should we do the whole uh, city one time where every student goes? No, it's not, not a good idea. So if that's the case, how we actually uh, construct the architecture of, of the system that works in a gradual way with you know, the health concerns in mind? So this is a very good example about how to bring students back using smart technology from cities, but you can't extrapolate as well from a mobility perspective. So we have seen, you know, cards, like, you know, hardware cards or, 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 or that are actually used for mobility in, in transit systems. They are not compatible with the bike service, for example. Uh, you, you see some people having mobile apps and they are using their mobile apps to call an Uber or Lyft services, but that is on its own and not directly connected with a separate system from, from the New York uh, Metro, for example. So there is a lot of things that you know, smart city technologies can help, but obviously when you talk it one step at a time, when you, when you consider education, high priority, when you take mobility, high priority, there is a lot of room for improvement. The biggest challenge though right now is which should we imagine first? Because the technology are there, people are there, uh, the skill sets are there, the hardware are there. But obviously, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the demand side, you know, please, let's move the students first. Uh, this is the, the way that we can move. And let's move the, uh, the rest of the population in, in such a way. So matching those demands and supplies and then providing the right type of smart technologies for the right need at the right time. I think it's a humongous challenge, but obviously doable. Uh, and also one thing to really mention is like, this is where real ecosystem comes into play uh, because, you know, a school, a family, a network, a uh, metro, an Uber, Lyft, there's a lot of things coming together. And this is the time to actually really take you know, smart city technologies, one step to make it more uh, ecosystem driven rather than one at a time. So I think it's a good time to reimagine businesses using software and, and, and smart city technologies. Thank you very much. Adam, what do you think? We have time for your comment, and then we're going to go into our predictions lightning round, the crystal ball. So, Adam, quick thoughts about what Senta just shared? Well, I think, you know, I, I think we're, we're speaking the same language, certainly, and, you know, the way he described uh, ecosystems and, and the need to really see smart city technologies as, as a part of a, a broader ecosystem and how we begin to change that is, is right on target. And, and um, you know, I think as we, before we get into crystal ball mode, but you know, along those lines, you know, really sort of understanding, um, you know, our capacity um, to to live with change and thinking about you know what um, how pe- people's preferences will change. There's certainly been a lot of uh, articles written about you know people uh, being concerned about staying in cities. And of course, New York is 
Uh, it survived 9-11. It survived Hurricane Sandy. Um, but thinking about the role technologies play in sort of mitigating the challenges of, of cities um, is, you know, is really one uh, way that technologies operate. And, you know, they always have, um, you know, mitigated the challenges of being in cities, whether it was transportation or safety and security or environmental. And I think, you know, continuing to see technologies play that role of mitigating those challenges so people do, you know, still um, support the trade-offs that they have when they live in a city. Thank you very much. Definitely trade-offs, and that's what we've been talking about. Thank you, Adam, and thank you, Santa. We've got about six minutes left. So I'm going to, since Adam just spoke, I'm going to go to Santa for his prediction first. How about that? Keep it moving around the table. Santa Belay, look into the crystal ball. What will change? Do you predict safely or or, or, or riskily? Uh, what do you predict will change about the issue of mobility and smart cities in our age. We're calling it, unfortunately, the age of COVID-19. But looking beyond, perhaps you could predict the end of 2020 or farther out rather than immediate. But I'll leave it up to you. Santa Belay, I have 90 seconds for you. Go ahead. Yep. So for me, it's like, you know, World War I, uh, League of Nations came up after that one. World War II, the United Nations. And after 9-1-1, you know, the DHS came into being. 2008, 2009, the Consumer Protection Bureau. So I think after this, there will be a strong desire to have health and uh, infectious diseases and and this type of essential things at the highest level of government's priorities. And that cascades into cities and in social services and supporting citizens and social services. And within that bracket, mobility will be having a high visibility. So I believe that there will be a lot of efforts to actually uh, give huge support to urban centers, especially with big cities, especially which are congested, to help them move off such congestion. And I think uh, cities will really be back again, but in a much more equitable way instead of uh, congestion and and the way that's being done right now. Uh, And I think it's going to be more ecosystem driven. But it's going to happen. I don't think cities will uh, go back. Uh, when I be actually, they'll come back better and strong. And mobility will be front and center in the near future. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Adam Lubinsky, I have 90 seconds for you as well. Please share your prediction. Well, you know, I think um, this challenge, certainly in New York and in other states, has um, in some ways shed a light on need for sort of more local and statewide solutions. And so I can imagine um, a kind of uh, new look at the way we plan regionally. Um, So not just in terms of mobility, but of course that's part of it, Um, but also thinking about food, uh, thinking about where we uh, take our, our holidays and our trips, since we're not going to be getting on planes as much. So I think a, a new regional way of thinking um, is, is part of this. And, and all of that comes down to neighborhoods and more local ways of thinking. I think on the mobility side, you know, uh, certainly cities will come back. I think people will find their ways back onto the, the subways and trains. But I also see an explosion of uh, micro-mobility, um, uh, bike share, uh, e-bikes in particular, if anybody wants to try and go and buy an e-bike, it's pretty much impossible right now because 
people recognize this is a great, fast way to travel that is socially distant. Um, <sighs> so I think we start to reclaim our streets, sure, um, sure. And, and I think we'll start to value our places even more. Very, very interesting. Um, will you be, let me just ask a personal question. You can pass if you don't want to answer. Ad Lubinsky at WXY Studio First, will you be getting on a plane anytime soon or a train or a bus? Um, I don't know how you qualify soon, but I don't think so. I think it'll be okay. a little bit of time. Um, <laughs> you know, our office is all working remotely and, yeah. um, and it's working pretty well. We've developed new systems for that. Yes, and I think businesses to survive have to do that. Thank you. Santo, what about you? You've spent your life traveling. Uh, what do you think? What's your, your Any personal reflections on what you might, just briefly, uh, might you be getting on some kind of transit in the next, let's say, between now and the end of 2020? Let's do that. Uh, also in a lucky position, and we have a good company, and we're an IT-based company, so everything's working okay for now, and I don't see myself traveling anytime soon. Uh, yeah, sticking at home for the time being. Well, the life of a broadcaster these days is a life of isolation and an at-home studio, and I've had it for years and years and years. So this is actually nothing new. What's new is not being able to get out and do my other activities, like my bands cannot practice right now. I'm a drummer, and our practices were stopped. Our concerts were canceled. And it's that fun thing of being around people for other activities that has, has stopped. That's where the isolation comes in. It's not the working, but I do yeah. empathize with people who are experiencing working at home for the first time. It is a challenge. I've just been told we have one minute left. I have a couple shout-outs. Adam, please say thank you to Chris Sullivan, who works with you. I hope Chris is listening, and I appreciate all of the, the back and forth. Uh, communications with Chris and he did a great job so please tell him I appreciate him very much and said to, I want to do a shout out to two people at SAP who sponsored the series actually Judy Cubis from uh, the, the automotive SAP automotive but also we had a lot of work behind the scenes from Ashwin Manapali so Ashwin I want to thank you so much for getting Adam and Santa to us and getting all their information to us and I'm just going to say to our listeners around the world be safe be smart Weigh the risks and don't take them if you don't have to. And here's my closing as all and Aaron and the Business Channel team, Aaron Keller, our engineer, our intrepid engineer, old beyond his years because he works with me. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt even if you're not going anywhere. Just take the car around the block once in a while. My car is getting three months to the gallon. Ha ha. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Just like Adam Lubinsky at WXY Studio and just like Santa Blay at SAP. Have a good day, everybody. Be safe. Talk to you soon. Bonnie D. Graham over and out. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the future of mobility and manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.